everyone, and welcome to this episode of Ocean, Ocean Science, Science Radio. Radio. I'm Samantha Wishnack. And I'm Andrew Kornblatt. Welcome to our fifth episode in our series on ocean reproduction, titled Ocean Lovin'. Ocean Lovin', we will bring to you... And here to explain the theme of this episode is our special co-host from podcast Strictly Fish Wrap Science Radio Hour, Skylar Bayer. Thanks, Samantha. Last episode, we covered some pretty interesting facts about seaweed reproduction. Seaweed literally responds to the motion of the ocean. And this week, we are going to continue to delve into the world of egg fertilized by sperm out in the open sea. A very common practice for not just seaweeds, but for many different types of marine animals. It's called broadcast spawning. So let me get this straight. Lots of different animals just release their sperm and eggs out into the ocean. Sounds like you're leaving a lot to chance. Like, hope this works. Bye. It's a surprising strategy, but common among some of the most well-known and ecologically important species. This episode will cover over three types of animals of the thousands that use this method. First to start with is coral. And here to talk about it is Beth Lenz. My name is Beth Lenz, and I am a graduate student at Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology. You know, Hawaii does not seem like a bad place to be a marine biologist. The species that I am studying is a stony coral called Montipora capitata, and its common name is the rice coral. It's an abundant reef-building coral in the main Hawaiian islands particularly where Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology sits. It's HIMB, for short, is a lab that sits inside of um, Kaneohe Bay. HIMB is actually situated on Coconut Island, owned by the state of Hawaii. They must get a lot of pina colada jokes. Not a bad place to be set up to enjoy the Hawaiian weather and have your experiments within snorkeling distance. Reef-building corals are the habitat for the fish, crustaceans, and other animals that inhabit the reef. Rice corals are found all across the Pacific Ocean and are highly morphological plastic, meaning that they have lots of different shapes. They can be encrusting, they can create plate-like structures, or even branches. Because of all these different structural shapes, they create a lot of different niches or little compartments for other organisms. Not only that, but they come in different colors, including orange and brown. They're very, very beautiful. So how do these beautiful living pieces of habitat reproduce? In corals, you could have species that are specific sex, and you could have species that actually have both, so they're hermaphroditic. They can be male and female, and so Montipora capitata, the, the species I study, is hermaphroditic, and they have both male and female parts. Both male and female, so they package the sperm and eggs together. Some do it separately. Got it. Monopora has two types of gonads. So when do they reproduce? During three months out of the entire year. During the new moon, between about 8.30 and maybe 10 p.m. at night, they release their gametes. They release these bundles that are filled with eggs and sperm packaged in them. And so they release these bundles into the water column. And in the water column, these bundles break apart. And that's where the eggs and the sperm interact and the eggs become fertilized. That eventually becomes an embryo and then a larvae. And the larvae swim about until they find a suitable substrate or um, bottom to actually metamorph and settle on. And that's how they actually become a coral itself. 
And that's when calcification actually takes place. So they have to go through a metamorphosis. Timing is everything with corals. If they miss their chance, they might never, ever survive. Corals that have been evolving and using these strategies for over 220 million years. So clearly something is working here. One question, though. If you're a hermaphrodite, can't you fertilize yourself if you're releasing your sperm and eggs at the same time? Well, we do know for this species, there's less than a 1% chance of self-fertilization, which, by the way, is also known as selfing, a real science term, not to be confused with selfies. But there's still a lot we're learning about the coral life cycle in general. One very critical aspect of a coral life cycle is when it gets its symbiotic algae, or symbiodium, incorporated into its tissues. This allows shallow water corals to get their energy from the sun. Some of the larvae can actually acquire it if they're a brooder. They can actually get it from their mothers. Um, some of the eggs, such as Montipora capitata, already have this symbiont, or symbiodinium, inside of them when the eggs are released inside of the bundle. Or there are situations where the parents do not, or the mothers do not give that symbiodinium to the eggs or to the larvae. And once there are larvae in the water column, they actually have to find it. Those bleaching events you hear about in the news, it's about corals ejecting those symbiodiniums and can severely stress out corals like the rice coral. If a coral is very stressed out, it may actually affect their ability to reproduce, which is the focus of Beth's research. So this coral that I study, Montipora capitata, have the symbiodinium inside of the eggs prior to release. And so whatever symbiont, whether it's a, a thermally tolerant one or a sensitive one, it gets passed on. And when coral eggs or larvae acquire their symbiodinium from the adults, that is called vertical transmission. And if a larvae that doesn't have any symbionts acquires the symbiodinium from the water column, that is called horizontal transmission. Vertical transmission, horizontal transmission, they're just going in all directions. What's next? Next up, starfish. And here to talk about them, we interviewed the writer for my favorite blog on the internet, The Echinoblog. Oh my god, Echinoblog. So many fans over here. I mean, it's me. I'm a fan. My name is Chris Ma, and I am a research associate, specifically a research collaborator at the National Museum of Natural History in the Department of Invertebrate Zoology. Chris's research is predominantly on the diversity of sea stars and the ecology of species that live in deep sea or cold water habitats, including Antarctic waters. So why sea stars? They're a strange group of animals in a strange group of animals. You know, sea stars are kind of the flagship animal for the echinoderms, which are, you know, a group of invertebrates that include sea stars, sea urchins, feather stars, and so forth. You know, all of these animals have been around since the Paleozoic for, for over 500 to 600 million years ago, and they've uh, adapted to, to life in a number of very unusual ways. These stars are evolved to live everywhere, from tropical shallow seas to deep Antarctic waters, and some species have adapted to carry their fertilized eggs, called brooding. And of course, if you cut a sea star in half, you'll get two new sea stars. But some species have a reproductive strategy we've heard before. They effectively release all of the gametes into the water, so the males with the sperm and the females with the eggs. Nothing new here, just boring old broadcast spawning. Unlike coral, sea stars can move around, which makes things interesting in a few ways. Even though most sea stars tend to produce these gametes separately, 
there is some synchronization. So a lot of times you'll see gametes ejected into the water by clusters or groups of animals at the same time. Literally, they gather together in groups and, and will just produce all of them so that there's sort of a convenient mass flurry of, you know, male and female gametes in the water. Gametes flying everywhere. Sounds pretty exciting. Well, there are two things that are pretty weird that starfish do when spawning. The first... There are a number of sea stars that practice pseudocopulation, which is another kind of weird thing because there's no actual copulation. It's just, you know, they they just lie on top of each other. And, you know, it's one of these things where they kind of cluster in order to, to just produce uh, gametes to facilitate reproduction. Ah, sweet sea star romance. On the other hand, you know, if you know anything about invertebrates, it's also very strange to watch because that's not how most sea stars uh, have sex. Fair point. It's a little odd because there's no penetration or internal fertilization. It does help get the sperm and the eggs in the same place in the water. The second really weird thing starfish do is one of Chris's favorite mysteries. Oh, well... Um, so there's a, an interesting dynamic that is surprisingly very poorly studied, and that is that sea stars, when they shed their gametes, there are many species of these which will actually rise up on their tippy toes to do that. Up on their tippy toes? Not their tippy fingers? That's kind of strange. Told you so. The biological thinking is that by raising their discs high above the bottom, the gametes, which are released in a milky spray, are emitted into a better water current to take the fertilized eggs far away. And the thing about it is that, you know, these animals across a wide range of taxa will essentially then awkwardly kind of stand up on their arms. I mean, like, you know, imagine a sea star, typically they're laying flat, right? And then all of a sudden, they, they lift the disc up from the bottom and push up from the bottom, and they're, they're holding themselves up all the time during the duration of the spawning. Imagine seeing a multi-armed starfish that is, you know, seven to nine rays, that is almost a foot or maybe even two feet across, standing up on its tippy toes, spawning, you know, in the middle of the tropics. And, you know, I mean, we're talking about a starfish you know, standing a foot above the surface on its tippy toes while it's it's spawning. There's pictures of this. It's it's amazing. It's just crazy. And if you want to see pictures of this, visit the Enchino blog. That's E C H I N O B L O G. So now it's time to talk about my favorite animal, the scallop. You know, farm scallops are a great sustainable seafood option. When they're seared with some fresh butter and maybe a nice wasabi sauce. Yes, they are. But did you know that what you're eating is not actually the whole scallop? It's just its adductor muscle, the one that helps it swim. That's right, listeners. Scallops swim. There are some really fantastic videos of this online. Literally looks like something out of this world. Yes, it's one of the many interesting things about these molluscan mavericks. Millions of years ago, scallops evolved to be free-living, swimming bivalves instead of burrowing into sand, mud, or rock. Rock? Yeah, they're boring bivalves. <laughs> <clears throat> so, to do this, they lost one of their adductor muscles, unfused their mantles, and voila, they can swim. 
Scallops are also really interesting because they have tens to hundreds of eyes all around their mantle. That's a soft tissue that lines the shells and no one really knows why. Studies have been done that show that they can see particles and their pupils can even dilate. Better to see predators, my dear. Well, we're not really sure about that because starfish don't seem to get them excited until they're practically on top of their shells. So what about reproduction? Well, scallops have very large gonads during the spawning season. The species I study, Placopectin magellanicus, or the Atlantic sea scallop, usually spawns in August to September where I live in Maine. It has separate sexes, male and female. Sometimes they're hermaphrodites, but this is actually pretty rare in this species. Most scallop species are actually hermaphrodites, unlike sea scallops. So what's the deal with the separate sexes? We don't know for sure, but it might have something to do with the fact that this species can live at least 10 years, maybe even 20. Their sex ratios are also one to one, so the chances of being next to a scallop of the opposite sex is pretty good. And I guess your odds are good enough, so it's probably easier to just make one kind of sex cell. Come on, Skylar. Tell us about the gonads. Yeah, tell us about the gonads. So my third favorite thing about scallops, the first two are the swimming and the eyes, is the gonad. They can get up to 30 to 35%, sometimes 40% of their body weight at the height of spawning season, just packed with eggs or sperm. Imagine having gonads that made up 30% of your body weight. For us humans, that's about the weight of both of your legs. And because scallops don't have a fused mantle, you can actually look at the gonads, which are right in front of the gape in the scallop. And they can be bright orange to deep red in females and have a creamy off-white color in males. When you dissect it, it kind of looks like a really thick half-crescent moon or kind of a really giant kidney bean. Ew. And those gonads are packed chock-a-block with sperm and eggs. A female in a single season can release several million eggs, but it's estimated only 1% actually end up becoming adults. So let's say a sea scallop is mature by four years and gets to live to be 10 years. And we'll call that six spawning seasons. And 1% of 3 million per year for all of those seasons, that's like 180,000 new scallops. So the 1% is most likely a big overestimate, but the reproductive potential is there. It's a very fecund species. It seems like a lot of these broadcast spawners have to produce a ton of gametes to have any chance of their sperm and egg meeting in the ocean. What's fascinating is that while we think scallops swim closer to one another to increase fertilization success, kind of like sea stars, but without the pseudocopulation, we don't fully understand what's going on with their timing of spawning. They're not as coordinated as corals or seaweeds, but they're definitely responding to cues in the environment and probably each other. I know we get excited a lot in this podcast, but the sheer scale of how these swimming scallops spawn is really cool. I know I want to continue to be eating seared scallops in the future. I agree, but what we do know is that broadcast spawning is not only how seafood reproduces, but also for habitat-forming animals like coral and the colonizers of all ocean ecosystems, the sea star. Be sure to join us next time for an all-new Ocean Science Radio. Hey, Skylar, remember when you were on the Colbert Report with a bucket of gonads? Buckets of gonads would be a great punk rock band. Gonads, gonads, gonads. I got a bucket full of gonads. Na-na-na.